The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and I want to call your attention once again to this passage of Scripture where we find unparalleled teachings about the love that God has for his children. And let me just emphasize this to you this morning, that I am talking primarily or will be throughout the sermon to those of you that know Christ as Savior. If you're a child of God, then you need to know how much that God really cares for you. And if you're looking for a a bit of good news in a world that's filled with bad news, then I don't know of any place better to go than what we're reading right here because this passage teaches that all of heaven is concerned about what happens to each and every one of God's children. From the smallest to the greatest, from the least significant to the most significant, from the poorest to the richest, all of God's children are precious in His eyes. And the wonderful promise that we find in this passage is that honor and wealth and fame and social status and fewer honors and no wealth and no recognition and no social status, none of that really matters to God, but that God cares for each and every one of us. Now, as God's children, there is no distinction between us. Uh, we're, we're not separated into the more loved by God and the less loved. Some of us are not better friends of God than others are. He, he just doesn't separate us in that way. And that's because there is nothing that we have done that could ever cause God to love us. There there is no merit in anything that we do that, that causes God's favor, His grace to be upon us. But the reason that we're loved is for Christ's sake. Because God loves His own Son and He saved us and we are in Christ, that's the reason why God loves us so much. Now, God loves His children as much as He loves His own dear Son, And I don't know how you would measure the love that the Father has for the Son. I mean, that's far beyond human comprehension. But if you can ever get it into your mind that you are important to God, you're important to Him because of Christ, then that recognition will help you to understand how that God will move heaven and earth for you. And it'll also help you to understand that if God loves His children this much... If he displays such love for his children, then certainly those of us who are a part of his church, we ought to love the other people of God as well. And so we want to be sure that we are not guilty of despising one of God's children for whom he died, that we do not offend them, not even the least of them. Now that's already been addressed in the previous verses to the ones that we'll read today. In verse number 6, Jesus said that it would be better for you to have a millstone, a massive millstone hung around your neck and for you to be thrown into the deepest part of the sea than to offend one of God's little ones. Well, as we continue our study today, we really come to the main point of this passage, which is the effect that this teaching should have upon the church. So if you'll look at Matthew 18, and we'll start reading at verse number 10. Stand with me, please, in reverence for reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 10, Jesus said, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven 
their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Father, thank you for your word. Open up the meaning of Scripture to us today. Bless us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our subject once again today is Heaven Cares, Do You? And that question is framed in relation to the question that was asked by the disciples in verse number 1 of the chapter when they asked Jesus, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And without really understanding the implications of that question, they showed by asking it that they had the opposite character of the type of people that God would call into his kingdom and would build his church from. Now, God does not call the worldly wise. We learn that in Scripture. He doesn't choose those that are primarily the wealthy of the world. He doesn't often choose those that are famous and those that are noble But rather, God chooses the weak and the helpless. And God chooses those that are not self-dependent, but those that are, and those that are uh, depending upon anything else other than God himself. He chooses neither the independent nor the self-dependent to be his children. He chooses rather those that are spiritually bankrupt, those who understand that they have nothing at all to offer God, And so because of that, we know that we'll always have the poor among us. We'll we'll always have the unwise. We will always have the socially acceptable among us because those are primarily the ones that God chooses. And God does not want us to look down on any person that he chooses, that none of us is better than any other. We, We have nothing to boast of because every one of us that have come to know Christ as Savior, we come to him through the route of being unworthy sinners that are undeserving of anything that God gives. And God cares for each of us and expects that we would care for others, especially that we would care for those that are weak and are in need of more attention because the rest of the world has so set against them. And so to illustrate how much that Jesus loved his people, he showed his disciples in this passage how heaven cares. And rather than to think that they were the mighty apostles that were chosen by the Lord and to think that they must be better than others because of that special calling, rather than to boast about being greatest in the kingdom of heaven, rather Jesus calls them to be like the master the one who came down to our level, the one who left heaven to come down, he condescended to where we are. And by doing that, he showed how much that he cared for his children, and God expects us to be the same. Now, God in heaven would do anything for them, and so that helps us to see that we should do everything possible to nurture God's little children. So Jesus illustrates this by showing how the powers of heaven are in place to help God's children. And we looked at this last week. The first part of the message, we talked about the angels that are sent to God's children. 
In verse number 10, Jesus said, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Now, I pointed out that this is the main verse from Scripture that's used to support the idea of guardian angels. Um, some of you that have come out of a Roman Catholic background, you're, you're much aware of the teachings that the Roman Catholics have about guardian angels. They also teach that you are to pray to saints, and they will tell you that the saints are also looking over you. Well, we don't have anything in Scripture that tells us to pray to saints. We don't even have anything in Scripture that says to pray to angels. But the Roman Catholics are not too far off on this idea that they do understand, they're at least going in the right direction, that God has angels that look over us. Where they're wrong is that they say that there are two guardian angels that are assigned to every person. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that in any scripture, but it certainly does show us that there are angels that look after us, and more likely there are actually thousands of angels that are called upon to minister to God's children. So it's not Jesus' purpose here, really, to talk about the details of the guardianship of angels, but simply to point out that if God is so concerned that he would have these majestic creatures that are in heaven, the ones that are before his throne, the ones that worship him at all times, they're there ready to do the bidding of the heavenly Father to be dispatched at any moment to help God's children. That if God has such majestic creatures that are watching over us, then certainly we ought to understand that God expects that we would take care of his children. If he cares that much, then we know that he expects us to care as well. There is no child of God that walks to church who can't afford gas for the car, a child of God that, that doesn't have enough money to open a bank account, or a child of God that can't buy designer clothes to come to church. There is no child of God that does not have the angels of heaven watching over him. God watches every move that he makes. So God loves that child. He, he loves the one without the wealth, without all the things that the other people have. He loves that child and cares for them just as much as he does someone that's standing in a pulpit preaching a message to a group of people today. Heaven cares for them. And Jesus is teaching that we ought to care for them. And so his first illustration about heaven is that angels in heaven are sent to minister to God's children. Then secondly, and we barely just had time to touch on this last week, is that the Son seeks God's children. In verse number 18, he said, How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went astray. Now here we're looking at the second power that is in heaven that cares for God's children, and that would be Jesus Christ. That would be the Son of God. Now Jesus often used common illustrations that people could identify with, and so he compares the love of God in this passage, the love that he has for his children, to a shepherd that cares for his sheep. Now the idea that Jehovah God is a shepherd and we are as sheep is one that we find common in the Old Testament scriptures. I know that you are familiar with Psalm 23. 
which begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Psalm 95, verse 7, it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 79, 13 says, So we thy people and sheep of thy pasture will give thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. And some of you may be familiar with the beautiful passage in the book of Isaiah that speaks of the same, where Isaiah wrote, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And so using this theme of the shepherd, Jesus says, What do you think of this? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, doesn't he leave the 99 to go looking for that one lost sheep? Now, we may not be able to relate to the illustration as the disciples would. Uh, I don't think that there's anyone in our congregation that herds sheep. Anybody have sheep in your backyard? Or I don't think so. Um, even though shepherding was considered not considered to be the best occupation, and shepherds were often looked down on, Uh, The disciples understood about shepherding. They knew how important shepherding was. There are none of the disciples that were actually shepherds, but they did very well understand that economy in the land of Israel. Uh, You don't make your livelihood out of keeping sheep, so you may not understand this as well as they did, but they certainly did understand how, how important that shepherding was in the history of Israel. That Israel was often set apart because they were shepherds. In the land of Egypt, when the children of Israel were there, Pharaoh separated the children of God, and he put them into the land of Goshen because the Bible says that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. They were also familiar with this because they understood that the greatest king of Israel was actually actually a young shepherd boy that was anointed to be the king, and that was David. So it's no coincidence here that Jesus would compare himself to a shepherd. Uh, He is the Jehovah God that we find in the Old Testament. He is the last king in in the line of David. And so he maintains the characteristics of a loving shepherd. Now, when you have the time, you might want to look at John chapter 10, because there we find Jesus using this illustration to a great extent as he talks about being a shepherd. In verse number 7, he explained that he is the door of the sheep by which all of the redeemed of God enter in. And that's a very important thing for you to understand, that Jesus is the only way that anybody gets to heaven. He is the door of the sheep. In verse 11 of that chapter, he is the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. In verse 14, he's the shepherd that knows the sheep intimately and the sheep know him. In verse 16, he's the shepherd that unites the flock, whether it's Jew or Gentile. In verse 27, he's the shepherd that feeds the sheep and leads them. They hear his voice and they follow him. Then we have other scriptures such as Hebrews 13:20, where it calls him the great shepherd. In 1 Peter 5 verse 4, it calls him the chief shepherd. And in that place, Peter says that the chief shepherd will reward all of the under-shepherds that take the same care and concern for each of God's little lambs. 
But there's even more to the analogy that would have been in the disciples' minds. When Jesus said that the shepherd goes after the one lost sheep, they understood by this how closely connected that the shepherd is to the sheep. Now, how many have gone out, how many have seen sheep in a pasture? How many of you have seen that? Well, of course, everybody has. Uh, there's some not far from here. You can go out, I think, on Stony Point, and I've seen some sheep that are out there. So I drive by there, and I look out into the field. I see all of these sheep that are out there. I can't tell one sheep from another. I mean, all those sheep look alike to me. Unless there's a black sheep out there, all of them look alike. One white sheep looks like another white sheep. But that's not the way that it is with a shepherd. The shepherd, especially in these times, knew the sheep, and he knew them like we know people. I mean, he could tell them apart just like we can tell people apart. He cared for the sheep. He lived with the sheep. He knew their personalities. He knew the little quirks that each of them had that made them separate from the others. He knew, he knew the sheep intimately. He could tell them apart. I mean, just in the same way that we know people. Now, I think about all of the people that have come through Berean Baptist Church in the past 10 years. Lots of people have passed through our doors. Some have become members. Some have moved away into other places. I don't have any trouble telling those people apart. I know the differences between them. I think about the years that I was in Kentucky and my church there and hundreds and hundreds of people that came through our church there. I recognize them. I don't have any trouble telling them apart. And this is the same way that the shepherd knows the sheep. He knows them individually. So the sheep are not just a nameless, faceless flock to him He knows every one of them and can tell them apart. He knows all of their details. Now, do you think about the way that the Scripture says that God knows about the details of each of us? In Luke chapter 12, it says that our Heavenly Father knows every hair that's on your head. He knows the number of your hairs. He knows when one falls out. And the idea that we get here, what he's trying to get across, that if he cares so much to know those kind of fine details about us, if he knows the sheep so intimately and cares for them so desperately, then don't you think that the Son of God knows everyone that's his? He is the omniscient Savior that he knows everyone that he died for. And if he died for them, would he not know if one of them is missing If he loves them with this infinite, matchless love, won't this Savior go after them? And won't he go and find them when they go astray? These are people that he died for. These are those that he wrote their names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So is he going to let one of them wander off and be lost? And you see what Jesus is showing us? Heaven cares for them all. The Savior gave his life for them. From the smallest, the most insignificant one, he gave his life for them. And so he's not going to let anything happen to them. Now, it's important for you to get the picture of putting the whole passage together because from the top to the bottom, it's talking about this connection that we have to the Heavenly Father, that we are his children, that he does care for us, and it will be continued on through the end of the chapter, even into sections where we talk about the discipline of God's children, and that comes up next week. We'll start that, that he disciplines his children because he loves them. He's not going to let them wander away without bringing them back. 
Now, we might be tempted to say, well, we have 99 sheep that are left. We have 99, and we're thankful that we have the 99, so why go after that one scraggly sheep that's wandered away? That's not the way that the shepherd thinks. What he does, he sends his gracious influences to bring them back. That there is no sheep that wanders from the fold. There is no child of God that leaves the church. There is no believer that goes astray that the Holy Spirit's influences are not sent out to that person to bring those wayward children back to the fold. And that's because those children are the Lord's. Now, the sheep that leaves, it may not be one that is the, has the thickest and the richest wool. It may not be the one that is in the perfect health. It may not be the sheep that's well-fed and fat and most valuable in the marketplace. That's not what's important to God. All of the sheep are valuable to him. How they look to the world doesn't matter at all. These are his people. And so he's teaching that all of the people of God should be valuable to every one of us. Don't let anybody come into this church. Don't let anyone become a part of the church and be ignored as if they don't have any value. If Jesus saved them, if they are precious in his sight, then they should be precious in our sight as well. Now let me note that all of us are compared to sheep. That if you are a child of God, you can find yourself in this passage because you are compared to the sheep that follow Christ. Often the sheep wander away, and that means even you. You may think that you're the strongest Christian in the church, and yet you are prone to wonder. There's a song that says, it's an old song that we sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Each of us as children of God are sheep, and there are times that we can go astray. And so the shepherd has to keep his eye on us because he knows that we're prone to wonder. And when the sheep wonder, the shepherd knows why they wonder. He knows where to go and find them. And we have passages of Scripture like in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where it tells us that there is no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. I mean, these things have been going on for centuries. The Heavenly Father knows, the shepherd knows exactly the kind of things that will tempt you and try to draw you away. And so the shepherd knows that when you go astray, he, he knows where to find you. He knows where you are. Now, you might think that, well, when I sin, my circumstances are special, that nobody really understands the pressure that I'm under, and nobody really understands the things that I have to go through, and so it's all right if I sin because God understands that. No, God doesn't understand it. God doesn't understand it. He knows that every sin that's ever tempted man is a common temptation that all others have gone through, and he does not excuse any person's sin. And if he teaches that in the Word of God, don't you think that he's teaching us that we can't accept other sins either? That we can't allow sin in our church? That we can't allow it to go uh, untested? And that when people fall into sin, that we don't bring them back? Well, of course, God expects us to do that. And God expects those of us that are the stronger of the sheep to look out for those that are the weaker in our fold. Now, sheep will go astray, 
And sometimes they go astray even when they've been feeding in green pastures. They go astray. They look for another place that will help them or facilitate the sin that they're in and not say anything about it. And so if this church is too hard about speaking on sin, preaching against the sin of the lives of the membership, then there are people that just go look for another church. They go look for someplace else that won't preach about their sin, that won't bring it up to them, that won't call them to repentance. And so they leave the green pastures where the Word of God is taught and they go to places where they will be accepted because nobody preaches about their sin. And Jesus is saying that that sheep that goes astray is out there hanging on a precipice, that he's gone to a place that endangers his spiritual health. And those people will often ignore the warnings of the church. They'll ignore the pleadings of the people of God and they fall into holes that are destructive. And here is where we must be so diligent. And we must be diligent to look at the nuances that we see in this passage. Notice the scripture says, And if so be that he find it. And if so be that the shepherd finds that sheep. Because sometimes the shepherd doesn't find the sheep. Now listen to me closely. Sometimes it's too late. Sometimes there is a wolf that's devoured the sheep, or the sheep has fallen off a cliff. Now, I can assure you of this, that if you really belong to the Lord, then the chief shepherd will find you if you go astray. And I don't want to press the analogy too far, but isn't it possible that in the passage, Jesus allows that some are actually outward professors of the faith, that they may appear to us to be sheep, but they're not really sheep at all. These are people that leave because they never were really of the fold. John said that there are some that go out from us because they never were really of us. And so there are people that go astray and they claim that they're Christians. They claim Christ, but they ignore those warnings of the church and they resist the pleadings of the word of God and they don't come back. And the word of God teaches us, do not assume that they are actually sheep or they are Christians. Now, in the next section, we study church discipline and we see that the result of the sheep wandering is sometimes that they can't be found. In other words, they don't return to the fold. And the Word of God says if they will not return, then you don't treat them as sheep. Now, just read verse number 17 to get a little preliminary insight into the refusal to accept proper discipline from the church. But continuing with the thought that we have here, the main emphasis is on the care that God has for the little ones, that angels in heaven are sent to them and the son seeks them. And in this analogy, the shepherd finds the sheep and he rejoices with great joy that that one sheep is found. Here it says he rejoices more over that one sheep than the 99 that did not go astray. Now, what, what, does the, what does Jesus mean by this? I mean, has the shepherd then lost care for the 99 that didn't go astray? Well, we could compare it this way. Uh, you see the news many times where a parent has a child kidnapped, a child gets lost. Let's suppose that you have a parent that has four children and one of them gets kidnapped or one of them gets lost, at that moment, 
time stops for a parent. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go through anything like that. But time stops for a parent, and then all attention is focused on finding that one child that's lost. And when the child is found, there is no greater happiness, no greater happiness can be expressed than than that parent seeing that child come back. The lost child is found, and so he rejoices. Well, does that mean that he doesn't love the other three children that that didn't uh, get lost? Well, of course not. The same care and concern would have been shown for any one of them if they got lost as well. And so this is the joy of the moment that Jesus is talking about here. That's all that it is. There's great rejoicing over the one that is found. And I can tell you this, that there is great rejoicing in God's church when we see one who has wandered away from the fold and has got into sin. When we see that person return then there is rejoicing in God's church. There is no lack of forgiveness. If you stepped away from God, if you're into something that you shouldn't be into, if you repent of that sin, then it's our obligation as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of that and welcome you back into the fellowship of the church. And so when you repent and you come back, the fellowship is restored. And it may be that the harshest of disciplines have been employed to try to bring you back. But that's not a display of lack of care. That doesn't mean that we aren't concerned, but we are so concerned that we're willing to do anything there is to bring you back. And again, we'll see that in the next section when we get there, when it talks about church discipline, that we reach out and try to bring sinners back in to the church and have them repent of their sins and come back into the fold. There's always great rejoicing over that. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have seen pictures of the shepherd that brings the sheep home, that he throws the sheep on his shoulders, and with one hand he grasps grasps the front hooves of that sheep, and with the other hand he grasps the back hooves of the sheep, and he holds those legs securely, and he ties down to his body that sheep, and he brings it home and brings it back to the fold. He secures it. And that brings us to the last illustration of heaven's care, and that is the Father's care. The angels are sent to God's children, and the Son of God seeks God's children, and also the Father secures his children. Verse 14 says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All of heaven is involved in the safety of the little ones. Last week, we looked at the context of the analogies that are given here, and I started with that today, that this passage is speaking about those who have come to faith in Christ, that it's speaking of true believers in Jesus Christ. So we're not talking here about, at this point, going out and seeking lost sinners. These are ones that are already believers in Christ. They're the little ones that have wandered away. And as we look at this next part, we have to stay in that same context, that the Father is not willing that any of those that have been brought to faith in Christ, that he is not willing for any of them to be lost. It's not God's will that any should perish. And I hope that you recognize that this is one of the most blessed doctrines that we find in all of Scripture, that those who have been saved by the blood of Christ will never perish. Now, we discussed that previously in looking at verses 5 through 9, 
and we talked about several great passages that speak of eternal security. Uh, we won't take time to read those all, but you remember John 3, verses 15 and 16, and John 3, 36. Those are familiar passages. And John 10, the one I mentioned a moment ago, where we see the imagery of the shepherd, in that passage, it says that Jesus is the type of shepherd. He is the type of shepherd that secures all of those that believe in him. In John 6, 38 through 40, Jesus said that it's the will of the Father that he would never lose anyone the Father had given him. In John 17, Jesus prayed that none the Father had chosen will perish. In Romans chapter 8, we have the great passage that lists all the powers of heaven and earth that cannot separate us from the love of God. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul said that God will keep the faith that we have committed to him. In 1 Peter 1 verse 5, it says that we are kept by the power of God through faith. Jude says that God is able to keep us from falling. And we can go to verse after verse after verse throughout the entire scripture that shows us that the Father secures us. He protects us. He will not let us stumble to utter destruction. The psalmist said, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. So I can find plenty of these kinds of scriptures in the Old and the New Testament. And I've just scratched the surface of the multiple scriptures that we can find. But some will argue, well, God said that he would not lose anyone. And he meant that, that there is no one outside There is no power, there is no force, there is no person that can be wrenched out of the hand of the Father, but there can be some lost, and these are the ones that want to be lost. That God God never lets sin or anyone else remove the seal of his security, but we, as the children of God, once we believe that we can leave him if we so choose. Well, how dumb is it to think that God would leave the safety of the sheep up to the dumb sheep? I mean, what do you think the Savior's responsibility is as a shepherd? He does what we cannot do for ourselves because if you are left to yourselves, most certainly you will fall. If you don't have him holding you and protecting you and bracing you all of the time, then you will fall. There is no more more foolish doctrine that says that God protects us from everything but us. The Word says it's the Father's will that you should not perish, and if you are truly one of His, you will not. Charles Simeon wrote in the early 19th century, The state of God's children upon earth is one of great danger, insomuch that they must of necessity perish if he doth do not continually exert himself in their behalf. But helpless as they are, It is the purpose and determination of God that not one of them shall ever perish. So do you see what Jesus is teaching the disciples and us? All of heaven cares for the little ones. It can't be impressed upon us too greatly that if angels are sent and if the Son of God seeks and if the Father secures, if all of heaven is employed in the care of God's little ones, then how could we ever neglect them? If God uses all care and diligence, then what must we do? 
None of them are insignificant. God cares for them, and so should we. So that brings us to the summation of the passage. Fourthly, we should serve God's children. Heaven cares, do you? So what is he trying to teach us? Well, simply this, that if you despise one of God's children, then you are out of step with angels, you are out of step with the Son of God, and you are out of step with the Father in heaven who is the father of those children. So that means that if you as a child of God sitting here in this room today, if you have something that is against another member... If you talk bad about them, if you gossip about them, if you have anger between you and them, then you're not displaying the characteristics of those who are truly in the kingdom of God. And what you do not want to be, you do not want to be out of step with angels and out of step with the Son of God and out of step with the Father. You don't want to be found there. Now, do you see what's one of the most important teachings of scriptures? I mean, this is really one of the most important things that we learn that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is always someone else. That no matter how high that you climb in the church, and no matter what your privileges are, no matter what name that you may gain for yourself, you are always lower than somebody else. You are not the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible teaches that you as a Christian are to look at this as if everyone else in God's kingdom is better than you. This is what Paul taught in Philippians chapter 2. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And so if you are to be great in the kingdom of God, you can never ask in your pride and in your arrogance and your self-importance, you can never ask this question, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As if that question is self-evident. Philippians 2 verse 3 is followed by the humility of Jesus Christ, that he stepped down off his throne in glory to go to the death of the cross. And you are to be like the Son of God who did what he did. He made himself the servant of all. You can't be greater because there's nothing lower than a slave. If you consider yourself to be a slave, you're not going to find anybody lower than you. If each of us in the church considers ourselves slaves of others, how can we ever find one to despise because we think that they're less than what we are? Nobody's lower than a slave. And we are to be a church that's full of slaves where none of us seeks prominence over another. Now, as we finish today, let's consider some practical truths, just two of these that really show us the purpose of the passage. So let's don't miss what God wants us to do. What are the practical considerations? Well, number one is that we are where we are because of others. We are here, first of all, because of God. I mean, there's nothing that we have that did not come from God. If you have better opportunities than someone else, where did you get those opportunities? Those came from God. There are people in the church that may not have your spiritual training. I mean, we're always in a, in a, different, um, we're in a different place in various stages of our spiritual training. And the ones that haven't been here as long need the care and concern of those that, that are. 
You started out in the same place where they are. You started in the very same place. You didn't start out up here. You started out on the very bottom when you came into the Christian life. And, and as you grow in your spirituality, you are to be one who helps others that are still down here and are still growing in their spiritual lives. You got something from somebody else. Somebody came along and gave you the gospel of Christ. They cared enough about your soul that they told you about Jesus and you got saved. Or it might be somebody who left a track for you to pick up or they handed that to you and you read that track and you got saved. Or it might be somebody that gave you a Bible and you read the Bible and you got saved. Or it may be because someone brought an offering to the church and they gave it to the ministry of this church or another church and because of that people were able to reach out and tell you about the gospel of Christ. None of you got where you are without somebody else. We don't bring ourselves into the kingdom of God. Nobody comes in without the ordinary, the ordinary impression of the word of God through the Holy Spirit on their heart. And so we're always dependent on someone else. Nothing happens to us. Nothing happens to us that doesn't come through the ministry of some other person. So we need to remember that. We are where we are because of others. So let's give ourselves to others so they can be where we are. That makes sense? Number two, God uses means to help others. Now, you often hear me say that God uses preaching as a means to save his people. And in essence, that's what I said just a moment ago, that nobody gets saved without the ordinary ministry of the word. God uses preaching to save people. But do you also understand that God uses means to keep people? He uses prayers to accomplish his will. That whenever you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, your prayers are a means of God's preservation of them. God also expects his people to persevere. And I know that some don't believe in perseverance, but that's commanded in Scripture. The Bible is clear about perseverance. You are expected to persevere, and God has a means by which you can persevere. It's not in your strength. And he uses certain kinds of means and able to help you to persevere. Does it help another Christian to keep from falling when you bear his burdens? When you share the burdens that he's going through, does that help him keep from falling? Will they persevere in grace if you're there to guide them in the way that they should go? Do you help them to persevere if you encourage them to guard their hearts against sin? Does it help them to persevere, to know that there's a church that loves and cares for them, who is concerned about them and will even help them to the point that they will discipline that person in order that they might be in the will of God, that we will help them when they go astray, when they go astray? You see, one of the worst places that you can be is to hear about sin and to ignore it. That's a bad place to be. You're certainly in a bad place if you ever, with your life, lead another person astray. Jesus covered that with the millstone. But you are also in a bad place. If you can watch one of the sheep of God, one of his little ones, if you can stand by and watch that one leave and go into sin and never try to recover him from that sin, that is a horrible place to be in. If that sheep wanders off, And you say, oh, well, there's plenty more like him. There's plenty more in the church. We don't need to be concerned about the one who leaves. Then you're guilty of ignoring God's appointed means of their perseverance. You see, folks, we're gathered in a church 
for love and support for one another. And if we don't love and support one another, there's no need for the church. You have no reason to be here today. If we can't love people in here that are like us, then how are we ever going to love people out there that are not like us? God cares enough for each and every one of his children that he puts all of heaven on alert for their safety and security. And so I want to ask you today, are you out of step with heaven? Do you have something against another member of this church? Have you spoken badly about them? Have you treated anyone here in such a way that they don't feel welcome to come and worship in this assembly? Well, if you do, you're out of step with angels, and you're out of step with the Son of God, and you're out of step with the Father of all of his children. The illustration is that heaven cares, that these powerful forces of heaven have been established for the love and the protection of God's little children. And so if heaven cares about them, why don't you? You see, God is never going to accept any person who thinks he is so great in his own eyes that he cannot concern himself with the weak and the helpless. You know why? Because that's where every one of us was before God saved us. And so we're to care as he cares. He, he gave his life for his people. He loved us. That's the model. And so we have to see how we fit that model by following in the footsteps of Jesus. Heaven cares. Ask yourself, do I? Do I really care? Get in step with all of heaven by caring for each and every one of God's children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us today. And Lord, this is a great need in our church, great need among the people of God, that we really do show love and care and concern for others that are a part of this church. And Lord, we want everyone to feel welcome, that they have brothers and sisters in Christ that are here that love them. And may we be a church body that, that never talks about other people, that has all kinds of griefs and disagreements with others. And when we find that those things are a part of our life, we just ask, Lord, that we would come to repentance, we'd ask forgiveness of it. And whenever we see one who goes astray because of whatever reason it might be, maybe we haven't treated them right, maybe it's because they've just fallen into sin and, and they've wandered away from the fold, help us to be the kind of people that will go after them and encourage them to come back, to show them their sin, and show them how to be back in fellowship with God's people. Bless us today, Lord. Help us to dedicate ourselves to this purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.